Hello, this is Intersection. On this edition, we're listening in on a live conversation that took place at the State Historical Society of Missouri, where the society hosted an event featuring dialogue about the African-American experience in Missouri. The conversation from October 15th features 97-year-old longtime Columbia resident Sion Williams and civic leader Bill Thompson. The African-American Experience in Missouri series is co-curated by MU history professor Kiana Irvin and State Historical Society of Missouri Executive Director Gary Kramer. Thompson asked Williams to look back on growing up in Columbia, going to school during segregation, serving in the military, and the legacy of the Columbia Historic Sharpened Business District. The conversation starts with an introduction from Gary Kramer. 97-year-old Sion Williams has had a front row seat to these events that have shaped the community of Columbia. Born and raised in this city, Mr. Williams served in Italy during World War II with the 92nd Infantry Division, also known as the Buffalo Soldiers. This was a, a segregated infantry division of the United States Army that served in both World War I and World War II. When Mr. Williams came home, to a still segregated community after serving our country. He held jobs initially as a janitor and other work that would only be allowed to persons of his color. In 1955, Mr. Williams embarked on a career with the US Postal Service. He worked there for 33 years in a management position and all of this time he lived and worked in this community. And he has witnessed to the many changes that have taken place, in particular the rise and later demise of the Sharp End District that was home to black-owned businesses in Columbia. With us this evening to begin our conversation is Columbia Civic Leader Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson came to Missouri from Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1976. He began working as a recreation specialist with the Columbia Parks and Recreation Department in 1981 and just retired a few years ago. Bill has a passion for local African-American history and shares his knowledge with schools and community groups. He is one of the founding members of the JW Blind Boone Heritage Foundation and has served as a volunteer consultant with the Missouri Humanities Council visiting historic organizations all over the state. Please join me in welcoming Bill Thompson and Sion Williams. Tell me the date you were born. I was born in June, July 29, 1922. 1922. Three West Lyon Street. OK. Um, were you born in a hospital? No. Born at home. Why was that? You couldn't be, go to the Boone County Hospital. OK, OK. In uh, fact, go ahead. Even after I come out of the Army, two of my children were born at home because they couldn't go to the hospital. I think that's a fact that a lot of people kind of, it, it escapes a lot of people that blacks were not allowed to use them, local municipal, municipal facilities like the hospitals. Um, tell me a bit about your parents. Well, my dad worked at Stephen College as a custodian and a chauffeur for four different presidents. He was there for 44 years. And my mother, she, she was a school teacher in Hilldale before she married him. I had three brothers and one sister. Both two of the brothers died young, and my sister was an invalid. She lived to be 28 years old. 
So her mother took care of her. Right. Right. Wow. So basically, you uh, lived at Three West Lions. Um, that doesn't exist anymore. Think about that. West Lions. Uh, Urban Renewal kind of wiped out part of that area, right? Urban Renewal took care of that. <laughs> took care of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a picture up on the, on the wall here. Can you tell me about this, this house? That's my mother's house. She bought that after I come out of the Army. Well, tell me the story. You said that uh, people were trying to buy the house from her, and you kind of stepped in. Well, it's a long story. Uh, a lady wanted to buy my house, and the uh, housing authority called me and told me to meet her at Bill at uh, Bear's office. So we waited, we waited, and she finally showed up. And Dave said, are you by yourself? She said, yeah. And he got on the phone, and he, I can't use the words he used. <laughs> anyway, he said, well, this lady can't buy the house anyway, because she was on Social Security, and they only gave her so much for hers. So then they sent up my mother a letter. She had put on a new roof and new bathroom. So I went down, and I talked to him, and I think the fact that my name was associated with Dave Bears. They backed off just like that. <laughs> well, that's basically, uh, it wasn't so much that they knew you, but the, the people knew Dave Bear, who was an influential lawyer in the community, more or less. Um, when you were a kid, let's kind of talk about some of the things you did. What type of things did you do when you were living in the neighborhood? Well, when we were kids, we were poor. We made our own skate scooters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when it was dry weather, we'd go down and walk through the tunnel and walk under the dove schoolyard. Right. They'd have tramp socials, and you need something at each house, about seven different houses. You get to the last house and get your dessert. You were a lifelong member at St. Paul AME Church. Yeah, I was baptized when I was about seven years old. Okay. Went to Sunday school, and then we'd come home and change clothes and play a while, and then put your clothes back home and go to church with your mother. <laughs> well... And when we got to be about 16 years old, they had what they called league. Right. And we'd go to church, back to church at 6 o'clock in the evening to league services. Okay, that was for the teenagers. Right. Yeah. Well, I heard that um, there were a lot of um, people that had old fruit trees and all kinds of stuff in the neighborhood. And sometimes the kids would go down the tunnels, come up out of the tunnels, and then climb over the fence and snatch what they could and then go back into the tunnel <laughs> and eat the fruit. Eat the fruits and vegetables that they could get. Uh, look at the other picture up there on the lower picture on there. Do you recognize that one? It's not a great picture, but. That's Blue and White Cafe. That's Blue and White Cafe in the Third on Street. The corner with the Harvey House. There's a lot of teachers lived there at the time. Mm -hmm. well, a lot of people lived there, but then next door to, to the Harvey House was uh, Blue and White. Okay. Then there was Jake's Market. Okay. Okay, that was. Then you go on down a couple more blocks. Mm -hmm. There was Miss Jenny Taylor's, was right in front of the school. Right. And then the next block was uh, the shoe cobbler. I can't, don't even remember his name. And Tom McQuitty's barbershop on the corner. See, I, I'm, I'm happy you're doing this because people need to understand that Third Street, Providence Road, was an important part of the community that, that people kind of overlooked. They talk about Sharpen and the importance of the businesses there, but there was as many businesses in the community as there was in Sharpen. Um, let's see now. What about the Keep Cool? 
Keep cool. That was by uh, Dick Tibbs' brother that was uh, between Ash and Warner Street. He had a platform in the backyard and a jukebox for the teenagers where they could dance and dance. Well, in other words, basically, the teenagers and kids stayed in their place and the adults went to their place, right? Right. There was no mixing of teenagers and adults. Uh, you know, you talk about people going down on Sharp Inn. Um, over on Ash, there was a place called the Dew Drop Inn, right? Right. That was, on, that was just before, what is it, Beef? Over next to Dalton Concrete or something like that, was it? Oh, no, Dalton right, Cold. Just off, of, off the bridge there, off right. Ash Street. Okay, you're seeing the effects of urban renewal. In other words, Providence Road didn't exist. It was Third Street, and it ended until they made those changes uh, when they resettled the people that were on Cemetery Hill and things like that. Urban renewal created the stadium road that we, the road that goes all the way down to stadium now. In other words, uh, Stewart Road, uh, there was a railroad bridge where the railroad went under it, right? At Stewart Road? No, the railroad came up to Broadway that in front of Broad Baptist Church. Okay. Katy Station. Katy Station, yeah. Right. Yeah. Then there was a Wabash Station out east of Columbia. Okay. And you had people living out in that area. You also had families living out where Bob Gosh's place is. Right. And all these kids walked to school. <laughs> what he's saying is that there were distinct neighborhoods within the black community. You had the Cemetery Hill, you had the townies in the middle, you had the people who lived up by the Wabash, and then you had the people who are on the other side of Highway 40. Right. So there were differences in the different communities in the black community at the time. Um, I heard that sometimes if you like your lived up on Cemetery Hill and you lived in town, you didn't get to walk over there, did you? <laughs> See, Garth Avenue stopped just where 70 goes over Garth Avenue now, that was the end of Garth Avenue. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically, we've seen a lot of changes. Uh, um, when um, I was doing some research about Columbia after emancipation, many of the blacks moved into the northwest areas of Columbia. And if you look at this area up around where the um, Cancer Research Hospital um, north of the highway. These were the areas where many blacks settled after emancipation, and they created their, their different communities. This is Intersection on KBIA. I'm Janet Saidi. We're listening in on a live conversation between civic leader Bill Thompson and longtime Columbia resident Sion Williams. The conversation is part of the State Historical Society's series about the African-American experience in Missouri. This conversation took place on October 15th at the State Historical Society of Missouri's building in downtown Columbia. Now, back to the conversation. In 1928, you began your education at Douglas. Who was your first grade teacher? My first grade teacher was Mrs. Bashirs. <laughs> was she strict? Yeah. <laughs> she said, yeah. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit more about going. You know, this school was well thought of by everybody. We, our teachers not only taught school, they taught Sunday school because they lived in the same area. It wasn't any so surprised to see your teacher sitting on the front porch talking to your parents. That's how close it was. Fridays, they'd have assembly, right. and all the kids would march in, and the teachers would stand at the door to monitor the activities. And over on the right side would be the band playing for them to march in with. And I played in that band for four years. Well, see, he kept that a secret. I had to 
dig around and look at an article that Rudy uh, Kelleher had done to find out he played trumpet. <laughs> um, there's another little building over here uh, down below Douglas. Uh, what was that place called? Right there next to the car. Was that the little shop right there? And that little candy shop was on the corner. Okay. Next to Warner Warfield's place. Okay, they called that the, they said that he sold pencils, cookies, and tablets, and everything else. That was a place where a lot of kids would go. Tell me about playing sports at Douglas. You, you well, said you I played, played football. basketball for four years, mm -hmm. but my football career was cut short. <laughs> what happened? One day the coach was late coming up, and uh, all the guys were throwing the ball around on the field, but I was laying on over by the bleachers talking to the girls. <laughs> he came over and kicked me under the bottom of the feet and said, go turn in your uniform. <laughs> <laughs> we had the first new uniforms. Up until then, we had, the only uniform we had was from Hickman High School and University, hand-me-downs. Okay. But that was in 1937, we had the first brand new uniforms. You were the gentleman on the right-hand side in the picture over here on the far right? I'm number two in line, eventually. Okay, well, you're on the left end, yeah. Okay. Front. Tell me about John Red. John Roland Red. He was a natural piano player. And every time we were going anywhere, if it was a piano there, you'd see him sitting at that piano playing it. <laughs> and he graduated and went to California, and he was no longer John Red. <laughs> First, he was Juan Rolando at a radio station. Okay. And then he became called a pandit, and that's when he really branched out. What we're saying is, instead of being an African-American, he um, created a persona that he was Indian. He wore a turban and became the toast of California and was well-known and very successful. But um, it, he would even have his family visit every once in a while. But basically, it was one of those things. It was a time of separation. You know, you could be anything but black and be successful. And that's what he did. When did you graduate? I graduated in 1940. How many in your? In your 12 girls and 12 boys. <laughs> 12 girls and 12 boys. Okay. So how old were you when you got your first job? I got my first job shining shoes at Davis Cleaners up on Broadway. Okay. And then my second job was taking tickets to Boone Theater. Okay. You did continue your education after you got out of high school. Yeah. You went where? Well, you know, after the first summer, I went to Lincoln University. Okay. And I was, after my second year in my first semester, I was drafted. Mm -hmm. So I came home and uh, I drove a cab for Alvin Coleman for two months before I was called up for duty. I also got married during that time. When you uh, went in the military, how did they decide what type of job you were going to have? In the military? Yeah. I was pretty fortunate. We went into Camp Breckenridge, Kentucky. Well, the first we went to St. Louis, Jefferson Barracks. Okay. And stayed overnight. The next morning, the sergeant got up on this makeshift stand with his fog horn. He said, anybody can play a horn, play an instrument, or type, step out. So I stepped out. I had gone both ways because I had finished the typing course in school. <laughs> so he said, anybody wants to be a clerk, step out. So I stepped out to be a clerk because I felt like being in the band was too much downtime, and I didn't need that. 
<laughs> so we left there and went to Camp Breakman's Kentucky. They separated, and one group went to Fort Robinson, Arkansas. Another group went to Fort McClellan, Alabama. Another one went to Camp Atterbury, Indiana. And we went to Camp Breakman, Kentucky. Mm. And there for six months, and all of them was transferred back to Fort Huachuca. And my outfit was the first one picked to go overseas duty. We left there and went to Camp Nalpack in Virginia. And while we was there, now we couldn't go into PX, but they had German soldiers working as custodians. When they got off at 5 o'clock, they could go in and drink beer and talk to the soldiers. We were going to fight Germans and couldn't go in and talk to them. We put us on a ship at midnight, and then let us come up on the deck at 10 o'clock next morning, and all you could see was blue water and blue sky, like a blue bubble. You begin to wonder if you're ever going to get back home. And one of those guys said, well, we are, we're sitting ducks. And a sailor happened to come by, and he said, no, you're not. He said, you protected under the water, and you protected on both sides and in the air. Well, at the time, we didn't know what he meant. But he meant uh, sub, sub was below you and battleship on each side. Where, where did you uh, wind up when you got off the ship? When we got to Italy, we had to cross over abandoned ships. And those guys that had the rifles, I felt sorry for them because he was shaky. My weapon was a 45 because I was a fly sergeant. It took us to a bombed out crater next morning. Lineman went to the front and we set up a headquarters. And while we were there, never did find out the significance of it, but every time the church bell rang, the bombs would come. It never failed. And we went from one Italy, one part of Italy to the other end, Genoa, Italy. And when the war was over, you can give your head so many points, you could come back home on a plane. I missed it by one point, and they wouldn't let me fly back. I did take 14 days to come back. I know you, you got married while you were, you know, just after getting out of school, and then you basically uh, went into the military. So, um, well, you know, you were sending your money home to your wife? Well, when I come home, my wife had purchased a home and she paid for it before I got out of service. I don't think any other soldier was welcome with that kind of a welcome, really. But, other, but everything else was the same. Aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, once you got home, um, what was that first job after you got back home? <laughs> My first job was at Barth Clothing Company. And I had been there about a week. And I walked in and I spoke. He had two sons, Jimmy and Joe. They had long come from high school. So I spoke to them and we talked for a few minutes. I went on upstairs and he came up and he said, I need to talk to you. I said, why? He said, don't you think you ought to call Jimmy and Joe mister? I said, for what? <laughs> Next morning I walked in and he handed me my check. He said, you won't work out. Then I went to Darn Clothing work for 12 years as a spotter in a cleaning plant. 
And uh, they had sent two guys to Silver Spring, Maryland to cleaning school. And I asked them if they would pay for me a correspondence course. So they came down with a contract, said, we'll give you 25 cents hour raise, and you won't realize the raise until the course is paid for. I said, no, thank you. But it so happened the lady that was in charge, she was the best part in the state of Missouri, so I was told. She would teach me anything, but she wouldn't teach none of the rest of those guys. <laughs> and she fell and broke her leg. And that morning when I come to work, both the brothers were standing there waiting for me. They said, she said she didn't want nobody to do her job but you. So then they come down with a contract. They said, we'll give you 50 cents on our raise and there'll be no contract. I said, fine. And as it happened, I got my notice to come to the post office for interview the same day I got my diploma. And that ended my career at Don Clooney. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation between civic leader Bill Thompson and longtime Columbia resident Sion Williams in a live event that took place last month at the State Historical Society of Missouri. It's part of the ongoing African-American Experience in Missouri discussion series. That series is co-curated by MU history professor Kiana Irvin and State Historical Society of Missouri executive director Gary Kramer. This is Intersection. Now, back to the conversation. Let's talk a bit about your, your life at the post office. Um, what type of work did you do when you first got on with the post office? After my probationary period, I chose to be a clerk. Okay. And I was a clerk, well, a distribution clerk for a while. And then I got a job on the window, and at parts of post window. And then I became a window tech. Okay. Well, was it common for a lot of blacks to be able to work on the windows at the post office? I heard that you might have been the first African-American to work the windows at the local post office. I wasn't the first. Bill Jackson was the first. Okay. Actually, he wasn't the first. A guy named Clyde Ridgeway came out of service and went, to, but he couldn't take it. In six, two months' time, he went back in the service. A lot of people don't really know that. But then Bill Jackson was hired as a carrier, and I was hired as a clerk. Okay. I was number two. Did you have any problems with anybody while you were working there? Yes, um. <laughs> I had one guy, but I'd been there about two months, and I bought a package of Fritos out of the machine. And he said, I was going to buy those. I said, so what? <laughs> he said, well, you want them smarter. You fool around and get kicked, you know. I said, well, if you do, you'll make a track and a dot for the rest of your days. <laughs> I, think, I think you can see that there were a lot more businesses in existence than what people thought. Sharpen was a major part, but there were businesses all spread out through the community that really made an impact on how the community grew. Um, who were some of the people that used to frequent that area? Do you, was it just the black people or, or what? Well, you might not believe it, but about 80% of the people didn't frequent Sharpie. It was just certain people that went up there. You know, people that wanted to go and have a drink or play shoot pool, something of that nature. Everyone talks about Sharpin. What did Sharpin really mean? Well, they used knives and razors. That's what it got its name from. When I was in the Army, you meet somebody from Ohio or somewhere, and they say, 
Where are you from? Columbia, Missouri. Oh my God, that's where you get your throat cut. First thing we say. Well, that was a reputation you had to have, a reputation of being tough. Um, you see, one thing we haven't mentioned is uh, Freeman's funeral home was on the barn of uh, Simpson Park Avenue. Shouldn't have been torn down. And then they had Stuart Parker funeral home where the Blind Boone Center is today. The only thing left of was was churches. Well, and even some of the churches got moved because, like, I know um, um, Russell Chapel used to be down on Pendleton. Right. And Russell Chapel it was, was about the only church that had to be moved. Right. And they moved them over to Second Street, Second and and, and Ash. A lot of things were taken out of the community that really um, broke the economy of the black community primarily, and. Um, made it difficult for blacks to really more or less gain their own economic stability, you know, after that. Um, you know, we had people like Minor Ralph who had their own barbecue places and everything, like uh, the gentleman that had the shoe shop. All these places were part of the community that, after urban renewal, lost their place. Uh, nothing was there to replace it, and there was no way that many of the families could come up with enough money to start another business. Well, you know, uh, the University of uh, Missouri um, Horticulture Department uh, has dedicated um, one of the gardens, named it the garden after Henry Kirkland because of his contributions. Um, he was able to get a Blue Ribbon 1904 World's Fair uh, for his hotbed technique and was known to be able to have plants and, and vegetables year round. And um, he was doing watering, advanced watering techniques and everything else. He worked as a janitor at the School of Horticulture. And uh, since he was black, he couldn't go into the classrooms and teach. So for about three years, he, they would bring the students out on the steps of the horticulture building, and he would share his growth techniques. Yeah. He had a little wag, a cart, with one horse cart. And he put his vegetables and things on there mornings and head for courthouse. <laughs> and everything had to be put in a certain place at a certain time. He was a very unique individual. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about the way things were. It would be nice if we could reach back and take some of those good attributes and apply them today, because then we might not have a lot of things going on that are kind of repulsing people now. A lot of our violence and things like that are going on, uh, where people are afraid to stand up and say anything to people when they see them doing something wrong. Uh, we might need to revisit some of these old values and try and see if we can revive them. That was longtime Columbia resident Sion Williams talking with civic leader Bill Thompson in a live conversation taped at the State Historical Society of Missouri on October 15th. It's part of an ongoing series looking at the African-American experience in Missouri, and the next series discussion takes place tomorrow, Tuesday, November 19th, with a look at the life and music of Charlie Parker. That conversation will be with Kansas City Public Radio host Chuck Haddix. That's at 6 tomorrow night at the State Historical Society of Missouri. That's it for Intersection this week. This episode was produced by Olivia Love and me, Janet Saidi, with help from Sydney Steele, Bill Finn, and special thanks to KBIA's Chief Engineer, Mark Johnson. Thanks for listening.